Welcome to Payne on Politics, a podcast where host Dr. Gregory Payne of Emerson College sits down with fellow experts to discuss the current state of politics, public opinion, and global affairs. In a world growing increasingly complex, communication and critical thinking is key. This only makes the Emerson motto, expression necessary to evolution, more true. Hello, this is Gregory Payne, Chair of Communication Studies at Emerson College, the first communication department and college in the country. And I'm here with America's favorite pollster, Spencer Kimball. Spencer, you had a very busy Tuesday, and you're going to have a busy Tuesday from here on out. We have lots of news for you to give us insights on. And first of all, let's start with the Palmetto State down in South Carolina. What, what, was, the, what was the take-home message with Nikki Haley and other races you did there? Yeah, so down in uh, South Carolina, it was interesting in that uh, we had the first congressional district, a Republican primary, and the seventh congressional district, another Republican primary, where you had uh, incumbents who had spoken negatively of Donald Trump at some point being challenged by Trump-supported candidates. Uh, in the first district, Nancy Mace, who was also being supported by Nikki Haley. So it was a bit of a proxy fight in that first district between Haley and Trump using Nancy Mace and Katie Arrington as their proxies. Uh, and Mace was able to hold the seat by about eight points within the primary. So that would be kind of a, a notch for Haley, though it is her home state and that first district is one of the larger suburban districts. So that needs to be remembered as we kind of look at uh, how that race unfolded. Compare that over to the seventh district. Russell Fry wins that by 27 points going away over incumbent Tom Rice. Rice had been in office for 10 years. So it's interesting to see that type of blowout um, in the seventh district. And that's a more rural area of the state. So Spencer, in terms of Rice losing, uh, your takeaway, do you think you do you believe actually that his vote for impeachment was the reason there? Yeah, I would say uh, his uh that, that vote alone, and we'll see what happens with Liz Cheney out in Wyoming in a few weeks. But yeah, I think that vote will be the Achilles for a lot of these Republicans. Now, when you come back to it, you mentioned Nikki Haley. Many people look at uh, Nikki Haley, the former governor who helped remove, of course, the Confederate flag on the South Carolina uh, flag as someone who's got potential tender in the future. What are your thoughts on Nikki Haley as we maybe move away from the Trump era eventually? Who knows how soon? Well, Nikki, she's demonstrated by winning in the first district her candidate, and she was out campaigning heavily with this candidate, that uh, she's formidable, which means, you know, at least in her own backyard, she would be competitive against a Trump or a Trump-like candidate. Uh, It's always important to cautious this, that it was the first district. It's a little bit more suburban. So, yes, it's a good win for her. It shows her to be viable within her home state. But it's still just one district out of seven in South Carolina. This is a a Trump state. And so I don't even think she would be able to beat Trump in a primary there. But at this point, I think she still stays viable by having that win last night. Right. Now, if we move out west, uh, we we saw, of course, some interesting dynamics in Nevada, which, of course, was a very very, very important state in the last presidential election. What were your takeaways on that? I know we have uh, Laxalt and Lombardo victorious there. Yeah, Nevada kind of went as we expected it to. Uh, We did some polling there uh, maybe a month or so ago. Uh, Laxalt was up by about 20 points. looks like he's going to take it by about 22 points. So no surprise there. Laxalt was the nominee uh, a couple years ago for the Republicans. And so he's got strong name recognition. He had the Trump endorsement and he had the McConnell endorsement. It was a very odd combination of of support. So both of them supported. Yeah, yeah. He was a, a, a rare bird in the Republican 
party on the uh, in the uh, the governor's race, uh, which will be going against uh, Sisliak, Steve Sisliak. Uh, Joe Lombardo won that race. We had him around 39 percent about a month ago, and he finishes up around 39 percent. So the question for that I'm looking at there is, does Lombardo have a bit of a ceiling even within the Republican Party? And will that translate to the general election? Uh, Nevada is one of those states that the Republicans are bullish on, uh, particularly in that Senate seat against uh, Catherine Cortez Mastow. But with that all said, she's been able to hold that seat. And the Democrats have been able to hold Nevada by about two to three points the last couple of presidential cycles. We'll see if it gets back in play this year. I know, Spencer, that part of that uh, that puzzle in Nevada, especially for Democrats, is holding on to the Hispanic vote. And I think you mentioned, of course, that the incumbent is Hispanic. Uh, you have embarked on a very historic study, one that I think is uh, something that's very, very much needed. You've got a very top pollster from Texas that's working on that. And as we look at Texas and what was coming out of there, uh, you had some very interesting dynamics, especially in a district which has been very heavily Democratic, very Hispanic. Can you tell us what you saw there? Uh, yeah. So um, last night they had the 34th district in Texas, and that runs uh, a little east of San Antonio, all the way south to the border. And this is a heavy Democratic district, but it's a heavy Hispanic district. It's about 85 percent Hispanic. And the Republican actually wins the district. If you add up all the numbers, they win about 52, 48, 53, 47, because there is four candidates in the field. But um, Myra Flores was able to get over the 50 percent threshold, which means that she's she wins the seat. There is no runoff at this point. And uh, that's a big win for the Republicans, because as we talked about 2021, we thought it was about a 13 point swing that we were looking at. If all of a sudden some of these districts that should be heavy Democrats are swinging Republican, uh, could be a, a, a long night for the Democrats and an exciting night for the Republicans if that trend continues. You said this particular district stretches all the way down to the border. Uh, given what you've seen so far and your plans ahead. What are some issues that do you think, Spencer, are pushing Democrats, traditional Hispanic Democrats, uh, to consider the Republican Party? Uh, When we did our study in Texas, as you mentioned, we've been studying the Hispanic vote, what we call unlocking the Hispanic vote. Texas was the first state we looked at, so that's up on our website. We've taken a look at Colorado, and we're currently taking a look at Florida. Uh, And these are all different pockets of Hispanic voters. And what we see here in South of Texas is a more conservative Democrat, uh, Hispanic. And generally, immigration's a top issue, but immigration isn't an issue like it is in Florida where they want people to wait their turn. It's more of an issue about jobs and ability to get jobs. And so while we're looking at... Um, you know, the, the issue itself, I think that in Texas, jobs is an issue. And I think uh, overall, just the cost in the economy, that's what the Democrats are having to deal with, $5 gas across the country, in some places closing in on closing up to $7. That is going to be uh, something I don't know if the Democrats can, can overtake. My, my question to you, uh, last week we were doing some pizza and politics uh, with people uh, that brought up the, the euro. And, of course, one issue that you see if you're in Southern California is the tremendous back and forth at the San Ysidro border with Mexicans and Americans coming back and forth. Uh, do you ever see the opportunity for the border issue to actually be easier where there's more ability to go back and forth? Because one thing we're seeing is we have a, a shrinking 
number of younger people in the United States. We've got jobs that need to be filled, whether it's in California, Arizona, Texas. Uh, how are we going to get in touch, get this border issue under control with immigration and yet deal with some of the economic needs of both countries? Yeah, I'm not sure if that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, when we look at our polling, we actually asked that question specifically last week about, you know, do you, should we open up the border to allow more people to come in to take jobs that aren't being filled, or would opening the border take away opportunities for jobs? And 80% said takes away opportunities. So people see this as an economic issue. They see it as, as their livelihood. So those who are here are going to be more hesitant to allow others to come over. And so I think this will be a perpetual issue for the future. You know, that's very interesting. Spencer, because I know it's anecdotal, but in Southern California, so much of the caregiving for an aging boomer generation is basically made up from Mexicans who are working illegally, uh, but they are meeting a need. And when we've cracked down on that, you've had some nursing homes, ironically, taking care of conservative Republicans in Orange County who no longer have people to take care of. So I think at times we're going to have to look at the facts versus some of this, what I would say, hype on uh, uh, various networks. Uh, As we look ahead, you have got a very, very ambitious ambitious uh, polling agenda ahead of you. And we, of course, are looking forward to you highlighting that down at the Global Summit, where you're going to be the featured uh, group down there. What t- Tell us some of the states that you're looking to poll in the days and weeks ahead. Well, uh, I guess in the short term, we just put out our New York poll, uh, taking a look at that governor's race uh, between uh, with incumbent uh, Kathy Hochul, who was brought, who replaced Andrew Cuomo, who resigned. So we've got a lot of drama in New York to to look at their their po- their races in two weeks, and then uh, Alabama. We got that runoff next week. Uh, Trump got back involved. If you remember, this is the Mo Brooks Katie Britt race. Uh, he had endorsed Mo Brooks back uh, whatever a year ago, then pulled the endorsement six months ago, and then just recently endorsed Katie Britt. Uh, Katie Britt won. Uh, the primary by about 15 points, uh, but didn't reach that 50% threshold. So she's in that runoff with Brooks. Uh, but uh, we'll be putting out those numbers later this week. Uh, one question, I guess, and I, maybe for some, this is getting into the weeds, but sometimes you and I like to get into the weeds. What is it about Trump in terms of not being able to support Mo Brooks? Given Mo Brooks is, it uh, seems to me, very, very strong support of the p- former president. I think it's that Mo Brooks lost that primary by 15 points and Trump doesn't want to be attached to a loser. And so regardless of... Okay, regardless but we do we do know that President Trump lost the last presidential election, even though Laxalt says he didn't. That's right. And, that, and same thing with uh, Brooks. Brooks will say he didn't lose the election, uh, but he didn't endorse Brooks. He went with Britt. So... Um, Brooks did, I believe, at one point question if he had lost the election, and that's what cost him uh, his endorsement, allegedly. So, um, yeah, so I think uh, Trump uh, saw what happened in Georgia and potentially wanted to get back on the right, you know, the winning track. He he split in South Carolina. He did well in Nevada, but I think he kind of took a a layup with uh, with Britt here in in Alabama. Obviously, we'll see what the votes look like. So in closing, Spencer, one thing I would say at Emerson, what we try to deal with, and you're such a a good proponent, is critical thinking skills, looking at facts. It appears that even though some of the Trump-appointed judges, all these investigations highlighted again by the January 6th committee show absolutely no evidence 
for any type of fraudulent nature that would have changed the election. Uh, the president, former president, and some of his strongest advocates still believe and still perpetuate this mediated reality. Uh, as a pollster, how do you deal with people who seem to back a story that seems to be lacking in the facts? Well, what we do is we try to understand the public's opinion and, and understand their perception. And so, for example, in our Hispanic studies, particularly down in Florida, many of the people that we've spoken to believe that the election was fraudulent, that it was rigged. And the reasons why they give it aren't necessarily that the votes weren't counted, but sometimes it could be how the ballot questions are actually written in in the state. And they say, well, these things are written in a way that I can't understand what I'm voting for. It's rigged. Or they, they come up with, so the reason why they think it's rigged might not necessarily be because one vote was counted and one wasn't. Some are arguing that the system itself and, and how the questions are asked. And so it's a very complicated issue. Uh, part of the, the it comes from is where people come from themselves, uh, particularly in the Hispanic population where you're first generation. Maybe you're coming from Cuba or Venezuela. Maybe there's more corruption in their elections. You're coming here. You see something. You're instantly connecting that to your prior experience. And that's what's creating that ex- expectation and perception. But these are real perceptions and they truly believe it. And it's not about convincing people one way or another. It's understanding where they are and then maybe trying to find another place to agree with. It's interesting because what you're talking about is the understanding of cultural competency and what has been sort of the past history, whether it be Venezuela, but whether we've had some of these other countries where democracy or elections are somewhat fragile. Uh, I really look forward, I know all of us do, not only from an academic but practical perspective of some of the insights uh, that you've shared so far with the Hispanic study. I think it's going to be a very, very historic one. Uh, Again, it's going to be shedding light on why Emerson polling is one of the most dynamic and out there in terms of leading the way with regard to trying to figure out what we can do in terms of elections that are going to be believed in, be credible, and try to, again, give us a shot in the right and the arm with regard to a fragile democracy. Once again, Spencer, it's always great to talk to America's favorite pollster. Look forward to talking to you next week. (laughs) Thanks again for having us.